Welcome to the Provident Podcast. Provident Expresso is dedicated to providing clients on the go with updates from the investment team. Clients will receive monthly updates from our team of investment specialists as they share the outlook of the market, offer a perspective of the events and trends affecting the economy, the financial markets and our investment management. In this episode, we invite Mr. Daryl Liu, Chief Investment Strategist of Provident, to speak to us. Good morning and welcome to uh, the next edition of the Provident Podcast. Uh, today, basically, I'll be covering quite a number of different topics. Uh, and this time, for this particular edition, we've decided to do things a bit different uh, in that we've actually, we actually plan to upload the, the PowerPoint slides uh, so that for those of you who are actually uh, listening to this uh, together with your on your computer, you can actually follow uh, the slides show in in line with this. Um, basically, there, there's quite a quite a number of things that I need to get through today. Um, the the rough agenda here is effectively I'll first be talking a bit about this new concept called the balance sheet recession, um, introducing what exactly this means and how is this applicable in the current recession that we're seeing today. Then I'll be moving on to talk a bit about all the government stimulus uh, spending plans that uh, is so important uh, in the interim. Uh, the next next part I'll be talking about is this issue about a jobless recovery, you know, whether or not this can, can happen or not. Um, finally, I'll be talking a bit about uh, giving an update about the equity market performance because equity markets have been, have been soaring over the last few months, uh, essentially giving an update on that as well as uh, what we've been doing on the portfolio side. All right. So... Moving first, moving along to the, the introduction of the balance sheet recession, um, effectively just to give some background information here, uh, this was a particular concept that was coined by uh, doc, Dr. Richard Ku, uh, the chief economist of the Nomura Research Institute. And I first heard this at a Nomura equity uh, conference in July. And I, I basically think that this particular theory or concept about the balance sheet recession very nicely encapsulates all the problems that we are seeing in the, the world's economy today. Um, in gist, and if you look at the first slide here in gist, um, what we can see here is that in normal times, basically the banks and the private sector has a, have a very nice relationship in the sense that the banks effectively take, take in deposits from, from people uh, and then they lend out money. And one of the key concepts uh, actually behind this balance sheet recession is the fact that human beings are profit maximizers. Meaning to say, uh, this is an assumption that is used in, 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 in all models, uh, essentially, that human beings basically want to be able to maximize their profits. The whole problem here is that this, is, this particular assumption holds true in the normal situation. But in certain instances, this particular theory actually doesn't work. Um, and that's really an, an instance where in the normal, uh, in the balance sheet recession, effectively where people actually uh, change their behavior away from becoming profit maximizers to minimizing debt. And this, this is a very, very rare instance that happens following a bust in, an, in asset prices, a huge fall in asset prices. You know. So this is actually illustrated on the next slide here. Um, that following a, a sharp plunge in asset prices, you will basically see uh, that people's behavior changes. And why is that? Well, just think about this. This is what happened in Japan in the 1990s. It's what happened in uh, the U.S. in the Great Depression in the 1930s. Under both, both circumstances, asset prices, this is your property prices, this is your stock prices, plunged by about 80-90% uh, over the course of about four years. 
you know, and if you're in such a situation where you see your your housing price fall or your stock portfolio fall by so much, uh, particularly if you had a loan taken out on on the property, you will realize that actually your balance sheet is severely damaged, and that's the reason why we call or Dr. Ku has t- termed this a balance sheet recession. The balance sheets of consumers and companies have been severely damaged, so much so that the usual behavior now changes. No longer from being profit maximizers to be one more of minimizing debt, and that basically is a situation that we see we saw uh, in the U.S. in the 1930s as well as in Japan in the 1990s. Um, and as a case in point, this is the current problem that we are seeing today in today's world as well, because the American consumers uh, have seen their their asset values fall uh, about 30-40% from the peak uh, and effectively now they are all in debt minimization mode meaning to say that they are not actually interested in spending money. Now looking at Richard Ku's, um analysis a bit further um, he's actually, he actually did a lot of studies on the Japan experience in particular. Uh, you can actually see that under the circumstance of a balance sheet recession the normal monetary policy responses simply don't work. Um, when I say the normal monetary policy uh, response, I'm basically referring to the cuts in interest rates that central banks normally do whenever you have a, a, a cyclical recession. You know, um, Effectively, the, the concept, the theory there is that when, when times are bad, uh, banks cut interest rates to try to spur borrowing, lending, um, and spending You know, to, to basically increase economic activity within a particular uh, country. Uh, this is this this these were the strategies that were taken in the U.S. in in Japan uh, under even in the Great Depression like the the 1990s Great uh, Great Recession in the U, in in Japan as well um, and similar strategies is what has been implemented in today's economy as well. But the problem here is that even if you are cutting interest rates, that particular strategy doesn't exactly work because people are not interested in actually borrowing money, you know. And that's that was uh, the data that Dr. Ku actually found. Um, effectively that uh, even though you've cut interest rates to a low, uh, practically zero in the Japanese experience, people were still not borrowing. They were actually more interested in repaying debt. Um, and this is shown by the, the slide there that you know even though interest rates in Japan came down to practically zero, um, you can see here that businesses, this is Japanese companies, were more interested in repaying debt. And again, looking at it from their perspective, these are Japanese companies that, that are in the top uh, of its respective uh, industry and sector, the car manufacturers, the electronic companies. Uh, they, they saw a huge plunge in the value of their balance sheets, so technically they could be actually insolvent, but their products were still in strong demand. People still wanted to buy Japanese goods. You know? So what could they do? Uh, they basically just needed to continue to slowly repay debt because their cash flows were positive on a regular basis, repay their debt. Um, hopefully over time, they could actually repair their balance sheet. You know, So notwithstanding the fact that interest rates had come down to practically zero in Japan, companies were simply not really interested in borrowing new money. That's why you look at the data here, it actually illustrate, illustrates that uh, net borrowing was actually negative, meaning to say that more and more companies and individuals were actually more interested in repaying debt rather than taking on new loans. Um, so, having looking at that from this context, so then what what can be done? Because obviously the situation is pretty pretty dire. Then, if you know, if if normal monetary policy uh, plans don't work, um, what what Doctor Ku found was that. You know what is necessary in a balance sheet recession is is essentially capital injection, meaning to say, governments need to 
do fiscal stimulus packages. They need to basically put money into the system. And what he found was that actually these capital injections worked because they helped increase the amount of uh, economic activity within the country. It helped keep the GDP growing at a positive rate. You know, and that's shown by the, the next couple of slides there. Um, the only problem here with capital injections is effectively um, something that we are seeing today as well. These countries will go into deficits. You know, and the amazing thing here is that Japan continued to pump money into their economy uh, for over 15 years. And effectively, their, their deficits, you know, the amount of additional deficit spending they, they put in was in the, in the equivalent of over 315 trillion yen. You know, which is why Japan is one of the largest debtor nations in, in the world today. Um, but effectively, the spending that they actually put in um, helped keep the Japanese economy growing. You know. So one, one of the next slides here illustrate the, the fact here that even though asset prices in Japan fell by over 80%, uh, you actually saw that GDP on a year-on-year -year basis continued to grow and was positive. You know, because if you look at it from that perspective, if asset prices had fallen by so much, you would expect that Japanese GDP would also have plunged. But what happened in Japan was that the government spending actually helped prop up the Japanese economy for over a decade. You know, there was a cost to that in the sense that you know, uh, the country had to deal with a larger deficit, but it helped keep people employed, it helped keep things chugging along. So no doubt the Japanese government has received a lot of criticism about you know doing strategies you know and not not helping the economy recover fast enough. Um, the government spending that they put in actually helped keep the economy ticking over, uh, notwithstanding the fact that asset prices had plunged and continued plunging for a prolonged period of time. You know, so basically the prescription here is that spending is necessary. And to draw a parallel as well to the current situation, what we are seeing today is that. We're seeing a similar situation happening in the U.S. We all know that the, the Federal Reserve in the U.S. has cut interest rates to 0 to 0.25%. So basically, short-term funding in the U.S. is practically free. Um, but the interesting thing is, if, if you can see from the next slide as well, the demand for funds in the U.S. is negative, meaning to say we are starting to see a similar situation happen in the U.S., um, a similar pa parallel in the sense that companies and individuals appear to be repaying debt at a time where interest rates are very low. And again, conceptually, that doesn't make sense, right? Because the normal situation is that if money is free, you, you're going to be borrowing and increasing your debt to spend. But right now, what we are seeing is that even though short-term interest rates are so low, people are still more interested in returning money and repaying money. And that's really what we are seeing in the US as well, that the demand aspect is not really there for funds. Um, there's another... There's another slide. The next slide actually illustrates the, the fact that the amount of excess funds in the commercial banking sector has actually uh, gone to a relative high as well. Um, this particular slide shows the required amount of funds that they need that the commercial banks in the U.S. need to keep with the central banks. Uh, and what we've seen is that over the last year and a half, the amount of excess funds that these banks have been holding has really skyrocketed. Now, there could be two reasons for this. One, that the banks uh, need to keep more funding because they have balance sheet issues. You know. But a second and more pertinent uh, reason 
uh, for this particular phenomenon could be because simply that there's no demand. So even though they have raised funds, you know, through their capital uh, raising exercises, simply they may not be able to find enough bor- potential borrowers who are willing to actually uh, take the money off their hands. So this is a, again a, a, a sign which you know we are we are monitoring and a bit concerned about the fact that you know. Uh, consumers and companies in the U.S. they don't really seem to want to borrow money at this point in time, you know, and that that could be a, a concern. Um, what are the implications on asset prices? Well, uh, if you look at the Japanese experience, this could basically mean that asset prices in over the next couple of years could continue to fall. Um, again, this is the probably the worst case scenario here. We don't think that this is a likely scenario um, because obviously now people are a lot more educated about the potential problems that we saw in the Great Depression as well as in, in the Japanese experience in the 1990s. So hopefully we will not see this prolonged fall in asset prices. So basically what is the, what is the prescription now? Um, and this is something that Dr. Koo actually covered uh, at, his, at his talk as well, that there is some prescription that is required um, in a balance sheet recession, and that basically is that government spending needs to come in to basically prop up the economy. And this is not just a one-off event, because if you, see, if you look at the Japanese experience, basically the government needs to come in with a prolonged period of fiscal stimulus. Not just one year, but over several years, you know. Um, and to think about this, we really need to look at the potential repercussions of this as well, because there are going to be repercussions to a prolonged period of uh, pump priming. One of which is effectively, you know, um, whether or not politically the governments can actually do this, because one of the problems you are seeing in today's world, um, a lot of a lot of politicians are actually talking about exit strategies, not talking so much about you know, whether there's a need for a second stimulus package, for example, but they're talking about, you know, do we need to start pulling the, the support away? And that's something that uh, Dr. Koo has highlighted is, is a potential risk in, in, in the marketplace because a number of politicians out there and governments actually are diagnosing this current problem as a cyclical recession, you know. And just to give a definition again, the cyclical recession is a normal recession when things go have gone overboard. You know, you just need a, a normal correction in your inventory cycle. For example, uh, you have a, a short downturn. Governments come in to pump prime, reduce interest rates. People uh, take advantage of the lowest interest, lower interest rates, and go about borrowing and spending. And economic activity very quickly recovers. That is what happens in a normal recession. The problem is that in this kind of structural balance sheet recession, things are different because the repairing of the balance sheets will take time. Repairing of balance sheets cannot happen overnight, cannot happen over the course of one or two years. It takes several years for balance sheets to be repaired. You know? And effectively, if governments think that this is a normal cyclical recession and they start to pull the life support too early, then we could see a second dip. And this is what some people are talking about in the marketplace, about the risk of a double dip happening. And I think that that is a very real risk here. If governments decide to pull the life support, meaning to say the fiscal packages, the quantitative easing, and they decide to pull it too quickly, we could see that the global economy is not strong enough, hasn't recovered enough yet, and we could see everything fall again. So we see that as another potential risk. And, you know, history is, is, is a great guide. And when we look at the situation today, um, you know, we can look back and laugh—not laugh really, but but uh, criticize the actions of Herbert Hoover, of of uh, President Hoover in the U.S. in the 1930s. You know, why why was it that he actually raised taxes uh, in the midst of the Great Depression? 
you know, or in Japan in 97, when the new uh, Japanese prime minister took over, he decided to pull uh, the Japanese the Japanese fiscal spending. Um, but if you look at it from their their perspective, it actually seemed to make sense at that point in time because they were being pressured by people who were criticizing their spending, um, and people who were criticizing that the government was racking up huge deficits. So when you look at it from their perspective, if they can see like green shoots start to appear, signs that the economy is recovering, then it's only natural effect for them to to start to withdraw all the the stimulative uh, policies. And this is the issue that we are starting to see today because everybody, as I said, is talking about exit strategies. They're talking about you know the economy is starting to recover, so we need to look at withdrawing all the life support um, that has been given to the economy. And I think that that's a very real risk. So, bottom line, the prescription for balance sheet recession is that more government spending is is needed. But politically, I'm not sure whether or not the governments are strong enough to be able to push through this spending. Second aspect as well is that something that we've covered before. When it comes to the spending, um, it really depends on whether these countries have got the reserves to spend. You know, and this is something that we talked about before that the Asian economies, for example, Asian countries, they've actually got reserves and they're able to actually spend that in in this difficult period. But countries in the West, this is your Anglo-Saxon countries, the US, UK, um, they don't really have reserves. You know, so if they have to spend money now, they're basically printing money and increasing debt. And it's a question there again, whether or not the investing uh, public can actually accept. The fact that these countries are going to be in, in greater debt, and there could be repercussions there into the in the bond markets as well. So effectively, we see that this is a potential problem out there, um, and I don't really envy the position of these governments uh, because they have a very delicate balance that they, they need to actually achieve. One being being able to put in enough fiscal spending over the next several years, but yet. The spending has to be strong enough, uh, enough to to make a difference in the economy, but yet not too big to raise their deficits to too large a, a level to cause discomfort within the marketplace. So this is actually actually a very challenging act that uh, these governments have to implement moving forward. Okay, so that's it for the first part. Okay, moving on to the second part now. Um, effectively talking about the government stimulus packages, because as I highlighted in in the the first portion, government spending is going to be key uh, in in the years ahead because of the problems that we are seeing today. Now, if you if you look at the slides, effectively one of the the aspects that we will need just very simply to cover is the is the very simple GDP formula. You know, uh, that's basically your GDP equals to consumer spending plus your government spending plus your private sector spending, which is your company spending plus your exports minus your imports. This is your very very basic GDP calculation. Now, what happens in a normal recession is that, frankly, uh, consumption goes down because people spend less. Um, people who are out of a job they can't spend money. Other people get pay cuts, for example. People get become a bit fearful, so they start hoarding money. So consumption goes down. Com- corporate spending as well goes down because companies decide to postpone or put off uh, expansion plans. 
uh, effectively because the, the, the broader economic climate is not doesn't really justify having to expand. You know, so company spending goes down. Your exports also come down because less people uh, are, are consuming more uh, less goods effectively. So if you look at the basic uh, GDP equation, really the only thing that can prop things up is your government spending. And that again is a reason why uh, fiscal stimulus and government spending is so key in this kind of recession. This is what happens in a normal recession also. Um, so this effectively is one of the reasons why we need to concentrate on all the fiscal packages that countries around the world has been has been announcing because that's quite going to be quite key in terms of decide determining, for example, whether or not these spending uh, are going to be helping the economies uh, over the long term. And in this this area, we want to focus on two main countries, and this is really the U.S. and China because. Basically, these are, these are the two most important economies in the world today. If you look at the U.S., they've announced a $787 billion stimulus package uh, about a year uh, at the turn of the year. China f- uh, have, has, has also announced a $500 plus U.S. dollar uh, 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 package. And in this, in this section, we really want to compare whether or not their fiscal spending plans have worked and where exactly the money is going to. Now, the first thing, if you look at the first slide here, you can actually see that the, the Chinese government is doing things a bit different from the U.S. Um, in the sense that the focus of their spending is really into the, the physical infrastructure. So they're basically spending money to build roads, to rail, develop the railway system, to open up the interior of the, the Chinese uh, of, of China. Um, besides that, there's also some money going into subsidies where they're trying to, to, to encourage domestic spending. Um, the U.S. on the other hand, they're trying to do a lot of, uh, they're also building infrastructure, but not just physical infrastructure. They're also doing things like trying to to, eva- uh, to ramp up the, the healthcare system, for example, um, the, the pension system. They're trying to institute some tax cuts in certain areas or sub- subsidies. So the, the U.S. spending side is probably on a proportion basis not as much into physical infrastructure as compared to China. The other main difference is in the funding. Um, China has been doing it pretty, pretty in a pretty smart way in that the central government is the one who is uh, funding only 30% of the overall stimulus. They've actually been directing the private sector to stump up the rest of the money. Whereas uh, the US government is the one who is actually coming out with the full $787 billion in terms of spending. So obviously this is going to have repercussions on the deficits. You know, because the Chinese government is not spending all of the stimulus themselves, whereas the U.S. is. Now, in terms of uh, looking at how how they have been spending the money so far, this is something that is very very clear. China it has obviously been a lot more effective in implementing its fiscal stimulus package. Um, in the sense, if you look at this chart, and again, before I look at this, I need to highlight that it's actually very difficult um, to assess where the money has been going to because there isn't really one central source to document all the spending. So in, in coming out with this particular chart, we've had to look at various uh, source, various sources, uh, research reports, uh, newspaper articles to get a sense of exactly how much money has been spent. So this is not an exact number, but it's an estimate based on all the different pieces of information that we could, could get hold of. Now, one of the things that we could see is that actually the China spending is on track. The government spending side, uh, they basically plan to spend about 1.1 billion dollars, sorry, um, and they've actually spent about half of that amount. Um, So the government spending side is basically on track. Um, What what has gone overboard actually in China is the private sector stimulus, um, and that's really down to the bank lending side. 
um, the China the China bank lending side um, over the first half of this year has hit 1.1 trillion dollars, and that's an incredible, incredibly huge growth uh, compared uh, to what was planned and compared to what was given out last year. Uh, but all this huge amount of money that's going into China has made a difference has made a difference. For example, the government subsidies to buy cars in China has already seen China leapfrog uh, all the other countries in the world to become the largest auto com- uh, auto sale country in the world. You know, the the car sales in China over the second quarter this year hit 38% growth, you know, which is amazing in this kind of uh, economic recession. So basically the the to to cut a long story short, the China fiscal stimulus package has hit the mark has really gone down and is starting to to impact the broader economy. So we're actually quite confident that China's GDP growth this year is going to be hitting 8%, you know, exactly what the government has said that they, they want to achieve. Um, so that's that's the first thing, that China spending has has uh, hit them up. In fact, it worked maybe a bit too well, which is why now they're looking at reining things back a bit. Um, the US, on, on the other hand, however, um, appears to be lagging in the sense that and this could be also because of the different political um, climates. In the U.S., for example, because they are democracy, it takes longer for them to do things. Uh, whereas in China, command economy, they just make the direction, they put the money there, the money gets gets down into the system pretty quickly. In the U.S., there's been a huge lag effect uh, when the money goes from the government down to the different states, to the municipalities. Um, then then, there's, then you, there's your usual tender. Um, you know, you need to get three quotes. So there, there basically is a longer lag in terms of uh, getting the money down to the actual economy. Besides that, the actual where the the money actually ends up also is a big question mark. Because again, in China, as a comparison, the money goes directly, in, for example, to build roads, railways, upgrade your airports, for example. Um, whereas in the U.S., I think a lot of the money so far has been uh, left up to the different states and municipal municipalities to decide exactly how they want to do things, how they want to spend the money. And based on the the limited reports that we can find, it seems that some of the money is going into things like you know sprucing up your restrooms in uh, the national parks, uh, going to build things like your dog parks. Um, so all all this well may help increase the standard of living. I'm sure it actually helps out in some way. But what what we are starting, what we are seeing is that maybe it, it isn't the most effective use of the money at this point in time in terms of building your long term infrastructure. So this is something that. Uh, we are we are quite concerned about in terms of the potential leakage of money in the U.S. Whether exactly the money is being spent on worthwhile things that will help the country's competitive advantage over the long term. Besides that, we can actually see um, that there's potential speed bumps as well in terms of the spending between China and the U.S. Um, and this is something that I've covered covered on already. But one of the other aspects that uh, is probably con- probably important to look at as well is the issue of leakages. You know whether money is going out, and just comparing the two, uh, if you look at the situation in China, we know that the real estate market in China has been has been on a huge surge. Uh, the stock markets in China are up over hundred percent since the bottom uh, in March, and basically it 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 must be a sign there that a lot of the increase in lending in China has started has leaked out into uh, asset prices. And that's one of the concerns there in China as well. Effectively, that you know their fiscal stimulus packages could be causing the building of bubbles um, in, in the, over the mid to long term. 
Um, and this is a concern I think that the government is facing, which is why just a couple of weeks ago, uh, the, the two largest state-owned banks in China came out to make an announcement that they're going to be reining back a bit on their lending growth. Um, because we know already that, that they've been lending too much money uh, too quickly. So I think they've probably been directed by the government to come in and slow things down a bit. Um, and once they started to announce this, uh, the stock markets uh, regionally uh, fell because they were concerned that you know China is starting to pull back on their f- their fiscal spending. Um, the official response to this is that China has continued to say that they they are they are dedicated. They could they will continue to spend money, uh, spend whatever whatever is necessary to be able to tide things through. But over the short term, we are starting to see that the government is concerned about uh, bubbles appearing, and they are starting to withdraw some money. So. Directing the banks to slow down the loan growth. Also, uh, we also understand that China has been issuing Romibi bonds recently, and that's another tool to actually take money out of the system. So that's that's really one of the potential uh, risks as well in the horizon. If if you have a huge increase in fiscal spending, there is that risk that you might be going to unproductive areas. It might be also creating bubbles. Yeah. Um. One of the other issues here that, that I touched upon briefly before about this uh, pot- potential risk on um, fiscal spending, uh, particularly in the US, is effectively that they're spending money that they don't have. Um, one of the issues there is that obviously Asian investors, Asian governments who have been buying uh, US treasuries have been raising their concerns about the US growing deficit. Um, and one of the issues there is that the U.S. just had a major treasury issue uh, last week and China was conspicuously absent from that particular auction. Um, and over the last couple of weeks as well, there have been, they've been China and U.S. talks, you know, and one of the things raised at that meeting was effectively that China is telling the U.S. that they need to control their, their spending. And uh, Timothy Geithner, who was the representative at that particular meeting, uh, came out to basically reiterate that uh, the U.S., is committed to ensuring that their budget deficit uh, is controlled over the long term and that there are certain strategies uh, effectively to actually rein back uh, the deficit. Now, this is the, the official line, what they say they will do. But again, to put things into perspective, if we are right about the balance sheet recession, it basically means that you know the US government, for example, will have to continue to keep spending and their deficit is going to continue to increase. You know, so I think it's one thing saying the politically right, correct thing to say, but I think it remains to be seen whether or not the actual action can back it up. Because if the situation is as bad as we think it is, uh, then it's likely that the U.S. deficit is going to continue to increase. And if you look at the latest numbers out there, uh, analysts are expecting that the U.S. deficit is going to hit about 13% of GDP um, by the end of this year. And just to give you some perspective, 13% of GDP, this is 1-3%, uh, is a huge amount compared to uh, what has been done in previous years. Even in the worst recession post-war, in under the in the Reagan years, the U.S. deficit spending only hit six percent of GDP. You know, now we are seeing it basically double from that level, um, and it's a sign there that you know the deficit spending in the U.S. is probably going to continue to increase um, in light of the difficult economic environment. So that effectively is uh, the second portion then, that government spending is going to be a key aspect in the immediate term. So for at least from our perspective, we need to see exactly where the money is going to. 
because it needs to go to the right areas um, and in the right amounts to be able to make a difference to the economy. But yet again, the, the, the balance is important because it can't be too much money going into uh, the wrong areas. Okay, so that's on the stimulus packages. Um, the next, next, next aspect that I would like to talk about is this issue about jobless recovery because this is another buzzword that's been making the rounds um, in the marketplace. Uh, and effectively, this, this term has been coined by people who are quite positive, quite optimistic. They are the ones who are saying that, yes, we can see a recovery in the markets, notwithstanding the fact that there's not going to be a growth in jobs. And I think this is quite important because nowhere in history have we ever seen a recovery when there's not been a growth in jobs. Because how can you have a recovery if the unemployment rate is going to stay high? Where, where is the recovery going to come from? So this, in this aspect, I uh, just need to refer you to the next chart here about uh, the jobless recovery. What we can see is that unemployment rate is going to remain high. And I think a lot of commentators out there agree with that, that view as well. The fact that you know structurally unemployment rate is going to stay high for a prolonged period of time. The latest jobs report number is probably going to come out um, uh, today actually. Uh, we expect the rate to, to actually increase getting closer to the 10% level. Um, but the continuing claims numbers have, have uh, just been released uh, yesterday um, and that basically indicated that the amount of Americans actually claiming uh, unemployment benefits has, is now up to 6.3 million. So this is 6.3 million Americans who are actually on, on their claiming their unemployment insurance. Um, it's, it's, in, it's a huge number and it's probably going to continue to go up. And this is going to have repercussions on the broader economy because if your unemployment rate is going to stay high, then your spending is going to be depressed, your savings rate is going to keep on going up because people are getting concerned. You know, and that's going to have a broader impact on the whole global economy. So for people who, who say that a jobless recovery is possible, I, I just must say that I, I don't really buy that. Uh, because effectively, if unemployment remains, remains high, it's going to have broader repercussions on the whole economy and it's unlikely that we will see a recovery per se unless your unemployment rate can start going down. Meaning to say you need still to have jobs being created before we can see a true recovery in the economy. Um, besides that, if you look at the next slide, um, this is just a slide to reiterate that the unemployment issue is not just a US problem. It's happening in the Eurozone as well, where unemployment rate is up to 9.5%. It's happening in Asia as well. In Japan, for example, unemployment rate has hit a six-year high. Um, so this is a global trend, and if you look at these numbers here, um, this is IMF estimates. Um, if Basically, uh, I, I do believe that the global unemployment rate is going to continue to trend higher, and that is going to have repercussions on the whole world's economy. Another, another repercussion on the rising unemployment rate is the impact on the housing market. The housing market has, has stabilized over the last couple of months. In some, market, in some countries, even housing prices have started to go up by quite, quite a bit amount. Um, effectively, our concern here is that if you look at the numbers, um, there's still a risk of foreclosures in the US. What does this mean? It means that there, if the unemployment rate remains high, there's going to be more and more families and households who will be unable to meet their mortgage payments and they basically will uh, have their properties seized by the bank. Um, this is something that we've been tracking. And so if you look at this chart here, you can actually see that the amount of foreclosures in the US has been, has been trending upwards. You know, uh, This has been accelerating. Um, and what we are concerned about is that a report just came out this week which illustrated that there's potential risk of another 1.5 million households in the US uh, potentially having their homes foreclosed because 
Till now, they have been relying on their unemployment benefits to meet their regular monthly mortgage payments. Um, and there's a real risk because these guys are still unemployed. Uh, their mortgage, their unemployment benefits is not going to be sufficient for them to continue to keep servicing their mortgage payments. And these 1.5 million households, um, if things don't improve very quickly, they could really find themselves unable to basically meet their mortgage obligations moving forward. And if, and if these properties get foreclosed, then really it's going to be putting pressure on housing prices in the short term. In fact, Alan Greenspan also just came out to say that he's, he sees the stabilization in the housing market, but he, he doesn't believe that the worst is over yet, meaning to say that there's still another leg down, uh, and likely one of the catalysts for that could be greater foreclosures within the housing space. Um, effectively, if you look at the situation as well, um, we can see that the housing market in the US could, you know, could imitate the Japanese market um, in the 1990s where you saw a prolonged period of a downward trend in the housing prices. No doubt there's going to be differences in behavior, you know, in, in consumer behavior, um, and things could be a bit better this time around. But basically what we're cautioning against is that if unemployment rate remains high, you're going to see a lot of repercussions in, on the broader economy in the sense that housing market is going to be depressed as well, um, and it's going to cause uh, potential further losses in the banking sector as well. Okay, the final part uh, of the, this current podcast, and I do realize that I'm a bit longer than the normal podcast length, so I'll, I'll try to keep this brief, uh, is basically providing an update on the equity markets. Because effectively, when you look at the situation today, equity markets have continued to rally. It, it took a slight breather for the month of June, but July has been going up again. Um, and one of the issues here in a lot of people's mind is you know, whether this, this equity rally is sustainable. Um, our concern is that you know equity prices have continued to go up, notwithstanding the fact that uh, earnings numbers have been going down. You know, so that's something that we are we are quite concerned about. So if you actually look at the chart uh, where we are actually showing the S and P five hundred uh, price index versus operating earnings, you can actually see that generally speaking, uh, stock prices tend to follow very closely with earnings numbers. Meaning to say when the companies are doing well and they're generating greater profits, prices will go up. I think that's quite a, quite a natural correlation. Um, but what we've seen over the last few months is that companies have continued to come out and say that their earnings are, are coming down, are being reduced. But if you look at the stock markets, they've basically been going the opposite direction. So there's, there's been a sharp deviation between the relationship between corporate earnings and stock prices over the last few months. Now, this is something that has really caused um, your valuation numbers to, to start to not look so good anymore. Now, let me, let me just say at this point in time that I don't think that stocks, stocks are expensive. Yeah, stocks are not expensive based on the current... Uh, price to earnings ratios, for example, and your price to book ratios, except that the rise, the rise in stock markets over the past several months, even though earnings have been going down, has really meant that your your valuations of stocks are now pretty much in your fair fair value area. Everything really depends now moving forward on whether earnings starts to rebound. Because if you look at the rise in equity market prices, the what what is basically saying is that the market is expecting earnings to improve 
and to rebound really quickly. Um, and if you look at the earnings reporting season, we've, we're basically coming towards the end of the Q2 earnings reporting season in the U.S. By and large, a lot of companies have beaten expectations. You know, um, the analyst expectations before the earnings season started was that uh, the Q2 earnings in the U.S. Um, broadly speaking, most companies were, would would announce about a 30% drop in earnings. So far, on, on average, most companies have beaten the expectations by about 10%. What does that mean? It means that instead of earnings falling by 30%, earnings have, have fallen by 20%. You know? So it's better than expected, which is one of the reasons why uh, it's been fueling the rise in equity markets. But earnings are still falling. And that's something that is quite important. Um, because if you look at the rise in equity market prices, it's basically suggesting that the market needs or expects uh, corporate earnings to rebound pretty quickly. You need to start bottoming out and you need to start increasing. Now, one of the other reasons why I think um, corporate earnings have uh, have been coming in better than expected, besides obviously uh, um, analysts lowballing the number, uh, is the fact that you know some people say that this is really the, the world's first SAP recession. Um, in the sense that over the past decades, um, companies have spent a lot of money on IT, um, supply chain management, you know, this business solution processes, um, and effectively they they are now able to react a lot quicker to external the external environment. Meaning to say, if you look at the situation following the fall of Lehman Brothers in September last year, the last quarter uh, Q4 last year saw a sharp drop in orders in production. Uh, in economic activity, mainly because companies nowadays can adjust a lot faster. You know, uh, this this ability to adjust faster has helped them manage costs, because one thing that we know for a fact is that revenues or the top line sales have come down tremendously. So if you're looking at it, looking at it from the company perspective, what can they do? If they see the top line sales come down, the only thing they can do to remain solvent, to remain uh, to to still declare a profit, is to control their costs. And companies have been doing a very, very good job of controlling the cost over the last couple of quarters. They have been cutting headcount, they have been cutting salaries, they have been renegotiating rents, they have been cutting operations as far as they can. So a lot of companies are actually operating on a pretty lean um, headcount at this point in time. So because of all these cost-cutting strategies, we've basically seen companies still come out with pretty, pretty decent earnings numbers. Our, the whole problem that we see right now moving forward is whether or not these cost cuts can continue in the quarters ahead if your top line doesn't improve. And this really goes back to our big picture view. Because if the global economy doesn't recover, if consumers keep uh, money in their wallets or keep repaying their debt, then really we won't see a sharp growth in your top line. And companies will struggle to keep on continuing to cut costs. Because a lot of these cut costs are these these cost cutting strategies are one off in nature, and actually if you think about it, if the broader economy remains you know difficult uh, and companies are forced to continue to cut costs, that likely will mean further job cuts, further salary cuts, and that cannot be good for the broader economy as well because your consumption, your spending will keep coming down, you know. So bottom line. We think that the run up in equity markets is not really sustainable because we need to see corporate earnings pick up and we think that it's very unlikely that corporate earnings can, can stage a V-shaped recovery, at least in the short term. So because of that, we think that there possibly could be uh, some correction in the equity markets moving forward. Now, that's not to say that we think that the equity markets are going to suffer a very sharp fall because one of the aspects as well that 
that has been uh, happening in the marketplace is that there is a lot of cash still sitting on the sidelines. And because there's a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines, people are still looking at buying in on dips. Um, so effectively, I do think that when the market does correct, this, it'll probably be supported by the, the large cash cash holdings that people still have. So markets might fall, I don't know, 10, 15, 20%. Um, but it's unlikely to fall by a large amount unless we have a broad systematic uh, issue that emerges again. So broadly speaking, uh, with, with, with the equity markets, we think that things have overshot, got, gotten a bit too over-exuberant as people start to price in a sharp recovery in earnings. We don't see that happening um, so soon. So we do think that we, we need to see asset prices take a breather, wait for fundamentals basically to catch up first before things can continue to, to increase. So that's basically an update on the equity market side. Um, just finally, just to talk a bit about portfolio positioning, uh, we've, we've, we've instituted the last round of changes for our IFAS portfolios. We basically brought all our beta portfolios back to the strategic asset allocation um, because basically the, con- the, the, the concept there is that as long as you have a time horizon of at least 10 years, we are quite confident, we are very confident, confident in fact, that the asset allocation will be able to deliver a positive return over that time frame. So notwithstanding the fact that equity markets might correct in the short term, uh, over the long term we are confident that uh, in 10 years' time equity prices will be a lot higher than what, where they are today. However, in the alpha portfolios, um, we are positioned a lot more defensively. It's very different because remember this particular portfolios are, are for clients with a shorter time horizon. They don't have the time to really ride through the ups and downs. Uh, so for this particular portfolio, because of our concern on the glo- the global economic uh, outlook, we are remaining more defensively positioned. You know, recently we just sold off our commodity exposures. We've trimmed the equity exposures. Uh, we're holding a bit more in cash. Uh, we are maintaining our, our bond allocations. We're waiting for for the markets to fall a bit before we decide uh, when, when when to deploy the the cash in that particular portfolio. So the two portfolios are a bit differently positioned, mainly because of the time horizon and our investment view over the short term. Um, so that's basically it for this particular podcast. Um, I'm recording this on the on on the eve of a long weekend. So for all of you out there who uh, have planned a short trip away, um, wishing everybody a happy National Day and uh, enjoy your holiday break. Thank you.